Chapter Eight B of Considerations on Representative Government. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Considerations on Representative Government by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Eight B. I hasten to say that I consider it entirely inadmissible, unless as a temporary makeshift, that the superiority of influence should be conferred in consideration of property. I do not deny that property is a kind of test. Education in most countries, though anything but proportional to riches, is on the average better in the richer half of society than in the poorer. But the criterion is so imperfect. Accident has so much more to do than merit with enabling men to rise in the world. And it is so impossible for any one, by acquiring any amount of instruction, to make sure of the corresponding rise in station, that this foundation of electoral privilege is always, and will continue to be, supremely odious. To connect plurality of votes with any pecuniary qualification would be not only objectionable in itself, but a sure mode of compromising the principle, and making its permanent maintenance impracticable. The democracy, at least of this country, are not at present jealous of personal superiority, but they are naturally, and most justly so, of that which is grounded on mere pecuniary circumstances. The only thing which can justify reckoning one person's opinion as equivalent to more than one is individual mental superiority, and what is wanted is some approximate means of ascertaining that. If there existed such a thing as a really national education, or a trustworthy system of general examination, education might be tested directly. In the absence of these, the nature of a person's occupation is some test. An employer of labor is on the average more intelligent than a laborer, for he must labor with his head, and not solely with his hands. A foreman is generally more intelligent than an ordinary laborer, and a laborer in the skilled trades than in the unskilled. A banker, merchant, or manufacturer is likely to be more intelligent than a tradesman, because he has larger and more complicated interests to manage. In all these cases, it is not the having merely undertaken the superior function, but the successful performance of it, that tests the qualifications, for which reason, as well as to prevent persons from engaging nominally in an occupation for the sake of the vote, it would be proper to require that the occupation should have been persevered in for some length of time, say three years. Subject to some such condition, two or more votes might be allowed to every person who exercises any of these superior functions. The liberal professions, when really and not nominally practiced, imply, of course, a still higher degree of instruction, and wherever a sufficient examination or any serious conditions of education are required before entering on a profession, its members would be admitted at once to a plurality of votes. The same rule might be applied to graduates of universities, and even to those who bring satisfactory certificates of having passed through the course of study required by any school at which the higher branches of knowledge are taught, under proper securities that the teaching is real and not a mere pretense. The local or middle-class examination for the degree of associate, so laudably and public-spiritedly established by the University of Oxford, and any similar ones which may be instituted by other competent bodies, provided they are fairly open to all comers, afford a ground on which plurality of votes might with great advantage be accorded to those who have passed the test. All these suggestions are open to much discussion in the detail, and to objections which it is of no use to anticipate. The time has not come for giving to such plans a practical shape, 
nor should I wish to be bound by the particular proposals which I have made. But it is to me evident that in this direction lies the true ideal of representative government, and that to work towards it by the best practical contrivances which can be found is the path of real political improvement. If it be asked to what length the principle admits of being carried, or how many votes might be accorded to an individual on the ground of superior qualifications, I answer that this is not in itself very material, provided the distinctions and gradations are not made arbitrarily, but are such as can be understood and accepted by the general conscience and understanding. But it is an absolute condition not to overpass the limit prescribed by the fundamental principle laid down in a former chapter as the condition of excellence in the constitution of a representative system. The plurality of votes must on no account be carried so far that those who are privileged by it, or the class, if any, to which they mainly belong, shall outweigh by means of it all the rest of the community. The distinction in favor of education, right in itself, is farther and strongly recommended by its preserving the educated from the class legislation of the uneducated. But it must stop short of enabling them to practice class legislation on their own account. Let me add that I consider it an absolutely necessary part of the plurality scheme, that it be open to the poorest individual in the community to claim its privileges, if he can prove that, in spite of all difficulties and obstacles, he is, in point of intelligence, entitled to them. There ought to be voluntary examinations at which any person, whatever, might present himself, might prove that he came up to the standard of knowledge and ability laid down as sufficient, and be admitted, in consequence, to the plurality of votes. A privilege which is not refused to any one who can show that he has realized the conditions on which in theory and principle it is dependent, would not necessarily be repugnant to any one's sentiment of justice. But it would certainly be so, if, while conferred on general presumptions not always infallible, it were denied to direct proof. Plural voting, though practiced in vestry elections and those of poor law guardians, is so unfamiliar in elections to Parliament that it is not likely to be soon or willingly adopted. But as the time will certainly arrive when the only choice will be between this and equal universal suffrage, whoever does not desire the last cannot too soon begin to reconcile himself to the former. In the meantime, Though the suggestion, for the present, may not be a practical one, it will serve to mark what is best in principle, and enable us to judge of the eligibility of any indirect means, either existing or capable of being adopted, which may promote in a less perfect manner the same end. A person may have a double vote by other means than that of tendering two votes at the same hustings. He may have a vote in each of two different constituencies and though this exceptional privilege at present belongs rather to superiority of means than of intelligence, I would not abolish it where it exists, since, until a truer test of education is adopted, it would be unwise to dispense with even so imperfect a one as is afforded by pecuniary circumstances. Means might be found of giving a farther extension to the privilege, which would connect it in a more direct manner with superior education. In any future reform bill which lowers greatly the pecuniary conditions of the suffrage, it might be a wise provision to allow all graduates of universities, all persons who have passed creditably through the higher schools, all members of the liberal professions, and perhaps some others, to be registered specifically in those characters, and to give their votes as such in any constituency in which they choose to register, retaining, in addition, their votes as simple citizens in the localities in which they reside. 
until there shall have been devised and until opinion is willing to accept some mode of plural voting which may assign to education as such the degree of superior influence due to it and sufficient as a counterpoise to the numerical weight of the least educated class for so long the benefits of completely universal suffrage cannot be maintained without bringing with them as it appears to me more than equivalent evils it is possible indeed and this is perhaps one of the transitions through which we may have to pass in our progress to a really good representative system that the barriers which restrict the suffrage might be entirely levelled in some particular constituencies whose members consequently would be returned principally by manual labourers the existing electoral qualification being maintained elsewhere or any alteration in it being accompanied by such a grouping of the constituencies as to prevent the labouring class from becoming preponderant in parliament by such a compromise the anomalies in the representation would not only be retained but augmented this however is not a conclusive objection for if the country does not choose to pursue the right ends by a regular system directly leading to them it must be content with an irregular makeshift as being greatly preferable to a system free from irregularities but regularly adapted to wrong ends or in which some ends equally necessary with the others have been left out it is a far graver objection that this adjustment is incompatible with the intercommunity of local constituencies which mr hare's plan requires that under it every voter would remain imprisoned within the one or more constituencies in which his name is registered and unless willing to be represented by one of the candidates for those localities would not be represented at all so much importance do i attach to the emancipation of those who already have votes but whose votes are useless because always outnumbered so much should i hope from the natural influence of truth and reason if only secured a hearing and a competent advocacy that i should not despair of the operation even of equal and universal suffrage if made real by the proportional representation of all minorities on mr hare's principle but if the best hopes which can be formed on this subject were certainties i should still contend for the principle of plural voting i do not propose the plurality as a thing in itself undesirable which like the exclusion of part of the community from the suffrage may be temporarily tolerated while necessary to prevent greater evils i do not look upon equal voting as among the things which are good in themselves provided they can be guarded against inconveniences less objectionable than inequality of privilege grounded on irrelevant or adventitious circumstances but in principle wrong because recognizing a wrong standard and exercising a bad influence on the voter's mind it is not useful but hurtful that the constitution of the country should declare ignorance to be entitled to as much political power as knowledge the national institutions should place all things that they are concerned with before the mind of the citizen in the light in which it is for his good that he should regard them and as it is for his good that he should think that every one is entitled to some influence but the better and wiser to more than others it is important that this conviction should be professed by the state and embodied by the national institutions such things constitute the spirit of the institutions of a country that portion of their influence which is least regarded by common and especially by english thinkers though the institutions of every country not under great positive oppression produce more effect by their spirit than by any of their direct provisions since by it they shape the national character 
the american institutions have imprinted strongly on the american mind that any one man with a white skin is as good as any other and it is felt that this false creed is nearly connected with some of the more unfavorable points in american character it is not small mischief that the constitution of any country should sanction this creed for the belief in it whether express or tacit is almost as detrimental to moral and intellectual excellence than any effect which most forms of government can produce it may perhaps be said that a constitution which gives equal influence man for man to the most and to the least instructed is nevertheless conducive to progress because the appeals constantly made to the less instructed classes the exercise given to their mental powers and the exertions which the more instructed are obliged to make for enlightening their judgment and ridding them of errors and prejudices are powerful stimulants to their advance in intelligence that this most desirable effect really attends to the admission of the less educated classes to some and even to a large share of power i admit and have already strenuously maintained but theory and experience alike prove that a counter-current sets in when they are made the possessors of all power those who are supreme over everything whether they be one or few or many have no longer need of the arms of reason they can make their mere will prevail and those who cannot be resisted are usually far too well satisfied with their own opinions to be willing to change them or listen without impatience to any one who tells them that they are in the wrong the position which gives the strongest stimulus to the growth of intelligence is that of rising into power not that of having achieved it and of all resting points temporary or permanent in the way to ascendancy the one which develops the best and highest qualities is the position of those who are strong enough to make reason prevail but not strong enough to prevail against reason this is the position in which according to the principles we have laid down the rich and the poor the much and the little educated and all other classes and denominations which divide society between them ought as far as practicable to be placed and by combining this principle with the otherwise just one of allowing superiority of weight to superiority of mental qualities a political institution would realize that kind of relative perfection which is alone compatible with the complicated nature of human affairs in the preceding argument for universal but graduated suffrage i have taken no account of difference of sex i consider it to be as entirely irrelevant to political rights as difference in height or in the color of the hair all human beings have the same interest in good government the welfare of all is alike affected by it and they have equal need of a voice in it to secure their share of its benefits if there be any difference women require it more than men since being physically weaker they are more dependent on law and society for protection mankind have long since abandoned the only premises which will support the conclusion that women ought not to have votes no one now holds that women should be in personal servitude that they should have no thought wish or occupation but to be the domestic drudges of husbands fathers or brothers it is allowed to unmarried and wants but little of being conceded to married women to hold property and have pecuniary and business interests in the same manner as men it is considered suitable and proper that women should think and write and be teachers as soon as these things are admitted the political disqualification has no principle to rest on the whole mode of thought of the modern world is with increasing emphasis pronouncing against the claim of society to decide for individuals what they are and are not fit for and what they shall and shall not be allowed to attempt 
if the principles of modern politics and political economy are good for anything it is for proving that these points can only be rightly judged by the individuals themselves and that under complete freedom of choice wherever there are real diversities of aptitude the greater number will apply themselves to the things for which they are on the average fittest and the exceptional course will only be taken by the exceptions either the whole tendency of modern social improvements has been wrong or it ought to be carried out to the total abolition of all exclusions and disabilities which close any honest employment to a human being but it is not even necessary to maintain so much in order to prove that women should have the suffrage were it as right as it is wrong that they should be a subordinate class confined to domestic occupations and subject to domestic authority they would not the less require the protection of the suffrage to secure them from the abuse of that authority men as well as women do not need political rights in order that they may govern but in order that they may not be misgoverned the majority of the male sex are and will be all their lives nothing else than laborers in cornfields or manufactories but this does not render the suffrage less desirable for them nor their claim to it less irresistible when not likely to make a bad use of it nobody pretends to think that woman would make a bad use of the suffrage the worst that is said is that they would vote as mere dependents the bidding of their male relations if it be so so let it be if they think for themselves great good will be done and if they do not no harm it is a benefit to human beings to take off their fetters even if they do not desire to walk it would already be a great improvement in the moral position of women to be no longer declared by law incapable of an opinion and not entitled to a preference respecting the most important concerns of humanity there would be some benefit to them individually in having something to bestow which their male relatives cannot exact and are yet desirous to have it would also be no small matter that the husband would necessarily discuss the matter with his wife and that the vote would not be his exclusive affair but a joint concern people do not sufficiently consider how markedly the fact that she is able to have some action on the outward world independently of him raises her dignity and value in a vulgar man's eyes and makes her the object of a respect which no personal qualities would ever obtain for one whose social existence he can entirely appropriate the vote itself too would be improved in quality the man would often be obliged to find honest reasons for his vote such as might induce a more upright and impartial character to serve with him under the same banner the wife's influence would often keep him true to his own sincere opinion often indeed it would be used not on the side of public principle but of the personal interest or worldly vanity of the family but wherever this would be the tendency of the wife's influence it is exerted to the full already in that bad direction and with the more certainty since under the present law and custom she is generally too utter a stranger to politics in any sense in which they involve principle to be able to realize to herself that there is a point of honor in them and most people have as little sympathy in the point of honor of others when their own is not placed in the same thing as they have in the religious feelings of those whose religion differs from theirs give the woman a vote and she comes under the operation of the political point of honor she learns to look on politics as a thing on which she is allowed to have an opinion and in which if one has an opinion it ought to be acted upon she acquires a sense of personal accountability in the matter and will no longer feel as she does at present that whatever amount of bad influence she may exercise if the man can but be persuaded all is right and his responsibility covers all 
It is only by being herself encouraged to form an opinion, and obtain an intelligent comprehension of the reasons which ought to prevail with the conscience against the temptations of personal or family interest, that she can ever cease to act as a disturbing force on the political conscience of the man. Her indirect agency can only be prevented from being politically mischievous by being exchanged for direct. I have supposed the right of suffrage to depend, as in a good state of things it would, on personal conditions. Where it depends, as in this and most other countries, on conditions of property, the contradiction is even more flagrant. There is something more than ordinarily irrational in the fact that when a woman can give all the guarantees required from a male elector, independent circumstances, the position of a householder and head of a family, payment of taxes, or whatever may be the conditions imposed, the very principle and system of a representation based on property is set aside, and an exceptionally personal disqualification is created for the mere purpose of excluding her. When it is added that in the country where this is done a woman now reigns, and that the most glorious ruler whom that country ever had was a woman, the picture of unreason and scarcely disguised injustice is complete. Let us hope that as the work proceeds of pulling down, one after another, the remains of the mouldering fabric of monopoly and tyranny, this one will not be the last to disappear. That the opinion of Bentham, of Mr. Samuel Bailey, of Mr. Hare, and many other of the most powerful political thinkers of this age and country, not to speak of others, will make its way to all minds not rendered obdurate by selfishness or inveterate prejudice and that before the lapse another generation the accident of sex no more than the accident of skin will be deemed a sufficient justification for depriving its possessor of the equal protection and just privileges of a citizen end of chapter 8b recording by bill borst